to Westside Unscripted. This is the podcast where the pastors loosen their ties, throw away their notes, and answer questions about all things theology and culture. I'm here with uh, Pastor Peter Montoro, as usual, and my name is Josh Bartels, a deacon here at the church. And uh, we are going to discuss, we, we actually have a smattering of questions that I am going to run through here in a little while. So it's going to be kind of like a, a speed round of Q&A. And I'm not sure about those speedy answers, though. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. If uh, last week's live Q&A at the church is any <laughs> indication, I don't know that speedy answers are your thing, but I can ask questions speedily. So <laughs> so we'll, we'll go from there and see what happens. But uh, as usual, you uh, have brought a book to recommend to us today. So uh, what, do you, what do you have? Yeah, so I'm going to recommend a book I don't have in my hand right now, and I've, we've mentioned this before. So the, the, the biggest, I know I've talked about this before, but uh, I've been reading the uh, the biggest story Bible story book to my kids uh, every night, and it is just fantastic. So if you are uh, if you if you're a family of children, even if you don't have children, I'm going to use this in discipleship from here on out as like one of the three books that I give to people when they come to faith, and I've already started doing this um, just to. There's just so much rich theology in such a compact form. Like if you want to understand even how to read examples of good reading of the Old Testament, it really is really just a good thing. So it's not just if you have kids, you should just get it. It's great. Awesome. Um, so about a quarter of the way through it with the kids now and it's just they're loving it. They always ask, Ethy always ask, Can you read one more? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he just loves it. And they all they all ask, one more. So I'll read one more, then one more. Read another one. There'll be one more, and it'll be like I have to go back to work tonight. <laughs> no more right now. Um, nice. But the book that I have in my ham, I'm not necessarily recommending it as a book to read. It's very dense, difficult, challenging uh, book. Uh, it's a very good book, but you'd have to be pretty into moral philosophy to want to read this whole book, um, which I did a few months ago. I think I finished it, but I'm pretty sure I haven't mentioned it on the podcast. And there's a quote. You may have seen this quote elsewhere uh, because it's it's uh, quoted a number of other places. But it's where the book ends. Let's see. So he's talking about how, uh, you know, what, what took place in the Dark Ages and uh, all of that uh, as the Roman Empire collapsed and Christianity really began to establish itself as the force of civilization. And so he says this, What they set themselves to achieve instead, often not recognizing fully what they were doing, was the constructions of new forms of community within which the moral life could be sustained, so that both morality and civility might survive the coming ages of barbarism and darkness. If my account of our moral condition is correct, and I think that his account is very correct, we ought also to conclude that for some time now we too have reached that turning point. And what matters at this stage is the construction of local forms of community within which civility and the intellectual and moral life can be sustained to the new dark ages which are already upon us. And if the tradition of the virtues was able to survive the horrors of the last dark ages, we are not entirely without grounds for hope. This time, however, the barbarians are not waiting beyond the frontiers. They have already been governing us for some time. And it is our lack of consciousness of this that constitutes part of our predicament. We are waiting not for a Godot, but for another, doubtless very different, uh, St. Benedict. And so this book was originally published. Let me uh, look up the uh, publishing date. Uh, so it was first published in 1981 was the first edition. So we have, uh, the barbarians have made progress in the past 40 years, but I think his ideas are very prescient, have been, have been proved right about just the bankruptcy of so much of our moral discourse in this country and how the foundations that would even underwrite having meaningful conversations about what's right and what's wrong have been destroyed. Uh, and so 
you know, the answer to that being establishing viable communities that can preserve what needs to be preserved, uh, not just of Christianity, but even of the elements of civilized life across the board. Um, and, uh, you know, as a, as a, uh, you know, pastor, and, and this is something I talk about all the time, I just wanted to share that quote with you, but it's, it's something that's been very inspiring to me that there's a difference. And this is, I come back to this so often, there's a difference between even a little bit of light makes a lot of difference in the darkness. If you've been, you know, in a cave or somewhere down where there is no light at all and there's this inky blackness, it's a different sort of darkness than, you know, the darkness of the night sky that has the stars still, even when the moon isn't out and you still have, you know, some sort of, some glimmer of light, it makes a radical difference in the experience of the darkness. And even in a dark place, to have some place where there is light makes a very large difference to how dark that darkness becomes. Um, and so there is a good to being a light in a dark place, um, both to preserve the means of light for the day when maybe the light will spread much more broadly, uh, and then also simply to make a, a real difference in the darker the place is, the bigger even a small light, the, the bigger the difference even a small light makes. So just wanted yeah. to share that. It's good. something I've come back to over and over again since I've read the book and thought it was worth sharing as well. Cool. Good. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So to dive into our speed round of questions. Okay. We'll see, see if we can get through all of these. I think I have eight or nine here. We'll see if we can get through all of them uh, on today's podcast. And then if not, we can uh, double back later. So first of all, can God create a rock that he can't break? God would not create a rock that he couldn't break. Um, because, I mean, God would not... Like God would not create a rock he intended to break that he couldn't break. God would, because to be God is to be wise, um, and to be wise is not to create conundrums for oneself uh, by <laughs> failing to foresee the future. And since God is omniscient, then he, you know, he sees the future and he knows what he intends to break and not break. And so, you know. yeah. So it's not really a question because often that kind of question is <coughs> meant to be a showstopper in terms of. You know, you say God can do anything, but God is actually just as limited. But the truth is, is that the answer to the question, like you're framing it in terms of the wisdom of God, actually demonstrates that we are the ones that are limited. We right. often build things that tumble back on top <laughs> right. of us. We often right? fail to yeah. foresee the consequences of our actions, and that is not a goodness in God to fail to foresee the consequences right. of his actions. Um, and in fact, you know, that's where it just keeps coming back to the doctrine of simplicity. We touched on this a little bit, you know, in the last question, uh, the 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 the, the life Q &A, Q &A, yeah, yeah. Right. that you know god's wisdom god is god doesn't just have wisdom he is wise god doesn't just have goodness he is goodness he is love he is all of these things um and all of these things are the same in god so god's power is wise power yeah. so it's not just that god has all power absolutely considered you know god has wise and loving power so he's not going to exercise you know it is not a, a lack of virtue in him to be you know it is, it is a, a greater ability, and we talked about this a little bit more. So, Yeah, that's good. So this one uh, could sort of be a practical follow-up to the quote you just read. So how do we as Christians continue to be excellent examples in a workplace? So how do we shine light as people at work? Well, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's a difference. There's two different mentalities. Well, it's probably more than two, but you have the mentality that is seeking to get ahead whatever getting ahead looks like. And you have the, you know, where getting ahead is the end goal, not the byproduct. 
So you have the, I'm going to get to the corner office if I have to sleep with the boss to get there. You, you know, mm -hmm. where, where basically there's no attention to the virtue of the work itself. It's the, the work is a means to an end. Mm -hmm. um, and the end is, you know, the glorification of yourself. Um, as Christians, our end is to be, you know, the glory of God. But there also is to be a, a doing the work to the glory of God. That like, you know, there's some work that just isn't good work. Um, you know, and so, you know, one just trying to think what would be an example of, be, would, let's see, what would be an example of something of that- bad work that inherently is sinful or Yeah, well, so there'd be not... work that's inherently sinful. Um, and there's lots of examples we could think of for that, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. Then there'd be work that isn't inherently sinful, but just doesn't accomplish any real good in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so for instance, I, I wouldn't want to argue that it's always sinful to be a- uh, uh, those people who call you up and try to sell you stuff over the phone. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say it's not making the world a better place. Yeah, so right. it is only valuable if that's the only way you can feed your family. I wouldn't say it's sinful to do so necessarily, but it's not something that you can really do. Like becoming better at it is not going to make the world a better place. So you're selling people more stuff they don't need. Um, Unless you're selling something they do need, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 sort of shyster people who are like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. You know, right. if, if if the product is actually valuable, it doesn't need to be promoted in that ways. Yeah. In that way. Right. You know. But where you have work that's actually something, you're doing something that is good. Like good work has a excellency to it. So when you're farming, you're not just farming in a way for maximum productivity, but you're farming in a way that is good farming, that is good for the land, that is that is good across the board. Yeah. You know, when you're making. You know, when you're an auto mechanic, you know, and you're not just, you know, trying to get money out of the cars, you're trying to actually, you know, take care of it. Like you're doing good mechanicing that doesn't create more, you know, doesn't just get more customers in your door, but actually um, cares for the people and cares for the car so that the car is better over the long haul. doesn't create mm -hmm. more problems down the road because you've been sloppy. Right. You know, that, that tends to like, there's, a, there's an actual like end towards which yeah. that work is, is being done. And so as we work, not you know, I think doing work to the glory of God is about, you know, stewarding, you know, even in, in- Yeah, and there is a fruit to that labor that is the paycheck you get, but that there is more more fruit than just the paycheck. Right, that you're doing good, you know, so that you're not, not an attitude of cutting corners just to get the paycheck, yeah. but an attitude of stewarding the work as something that is worth doing. Um, and, you know, that would be a way to tell what work is good and what work isn't. Good work can be done with excellence. Yeah, and if if there's no criteria of excellence for a job, then that raises into question either your understanding of the job or the value of the job to be mm -hmm. done. Um, mm -hmm. And so that we're people that do everything for the greater glory of God, but also people that value reality and bending ourselves to reality rather than bending reality to our, you know, working working with the grain of the world, as it were, yeah. <laughs> rather than you know constantly operating by main force. Mm -hmm. So that would be one helpful aspect. There'd cool. you know, be a lot more to a theology of work than that, but that would be a good place to start, I think. Yeah. So another question about uh, our public face would be, what are some good conversation starters for talking about the Bible or the gospel in the workplace? I'm assuming this could also be extended to any time we're in public with people and aren't directly trying to evangelize, but that we have opportunities and we're trying to kind of steer conversations. What uh, What would be some good ways to... Hmm. bring people to the Bible or to the gospel? I mean, 
you know, sometimes just asking people where they're at, you know, if they've ever thought about, um, you know, so, I mean, for me, like I'm a, so one of the things that I do just trying to give, you know, tend to, you know, give gospel. So, so it's a little different, like the sort of work that I do in the encounters that I would have. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think of like, what would be a, you know, I used to have a lot, you know, conversations when I worked at a warehouse and, you know, we'd, we'd talk about all kinds of different things, but I was also 16. So I may not have been the best example of what, <laughs> <laughs> what everyone else should be aspiring to. Um, I think asking people questions. And I think there's, I think people sometimes will ask you questions. Like if you're known as a Christian, you're not an undercover Christian, mm-hmm. then people will ask you questions and being able to give a gracious, non-grading answer that is bold, but not, um, you know, is bold, but not, uh, deliberately and intentionally offensive, you know, then, you know, trying to break people's stereotypes down is, is a useful, you know, I think a useful, like just conversation, like people assume a certain thing mm-hmm. and actually pushing into that assumption that they have that, you know, Christians are hateful, but you're, you're loving, you know, basically confuse people <laughs> when people are confused, but not put off, then they ask more questions and that's how you can push the conversation forward. Mm-hmm. So that would be a, yeah, you know, I would almost say that in like to use your metaphor of being the light in the darkest of places, just talking to people is kind of odd in our world Yeah, because so much interaction happens not anonymously, but mediated through screens. And so to have a real conversation with someone and talk about real things now, often, sometimes when you have that conversation, they don't, uh, we're not, we're not very good at conversations anymore. And so sometimes the conversation doesn't go anywhere, but just being able to talk to somebody uh, will often give them, it'll break some of their stereotypes because, oh, you're a Christian. And so you should be like screaming at me because that's what I get on the internet or, you know, but, but real life is just so much different than the internet. And so I think that those kind of conversations. Yeah. I think even just asking people, you know, if you have an opportunity of, it just almost seems like it's going to be more responding to people's questions than like the settings that, you know, where you, you can, uh, you know, go up and go up and you, you, you know, you have that opportunity. It's more like you have to build that relationship first, yeah. you know, but even just asking people, so what do you think? Yep. What do you think about God? <laughs> you know, just as simple as that, you know, what do you, you know, what do you think about, about these sort of big questions and even people realizing maybe how little they know or how it effect, you know, when they try to actually, they may think they got this all down, but then they try to explain it. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully you have something more coherent, at least comparatively, yeah. you know, to be able yeah. to share. Good. All right. Our next question. Uh, how do dinosaurs fit in with creation? And are dragons real? We'll just tag that on the end too. Are dragons real? Um, <laughs> I mean, God created the dinosaurs, so that's, so that's how they fit in. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Uh, are dragons real? Absolutely. Um, depends on how you define them. Like dragons, you know, are sometimes can be used to refer to spiritual creatures. Uh, so, you know, dragons as in uh, demons or potentially, you know, since they're, you know, even demons are depicted as a departure from something good, you know, maybe there's something dragon-esque about angels as well, maybe in a good way. I mean, that's what Andy Wilson has speculated about that, but I don't, you know, that, that gets out of my, mm-hmm. my skill set. But I mean, certainly Satan is described as a dragon. If he's fallen, then I wonder what an unfallen dragon would be like, in, yeah, in, right. you know, because dragons are kind of majestic, but also distorted depending on how you look at it. So maybe there's some majestic good, you know, good dragons too. So yeah, it really depends on how you define the term, you know, and uh, 
you know, whether, you know, there's this blending, even in a creature like Leviathan, there's this, you've got all this physical description of this, you know, beast, but then you've got, he's king of over all the children of pride. And mm-hmm. what's that mean? Um, <laughs> you know, so you've got, even in scripture, this merging of metaphorical and, and descriptive language. And um, so, yeah. So how do we know whether we should confess our sin to God only or to another person? At what point does our sin cross the line to where we need to deal with it with someone else when it involves someone else? Like they use an example in the question of like, I'm envious of someone. Is that a sin I should confess to another brother or, you know, make right with him or, you know. I mean, I think, you know, all of our speech has to consider you know, the good of the person spoken to, the good of the person spoken about, and the good of the person who's speaking. Um, so there may be times where something has become such a deep-rooted sin in your life that you need to speak it out loud to someone else. Um, now, if, if you're envious of someone um, and that hasn't resulted in any actions against that person to undermine them, then speaking to the person of which you're envious it's probably not going to be helpful. You know, of course, the stereotypical unhelpful confession is, <laughs> I've struggled with lusting after you for a long time. That's not going to be helpful, right? You know, unless, I just can't imagine it. You know, <laughs> I've heard of people doing that. <laughs> it's just very non-helpful thing to do. Just makes the, makes the problem worse, right? Yeah. Um, so that's when, you know, the good of the person being spoken to outweighs any good that it might result to you. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and that probably wouldn't be very good for you either. Yeah. You know, but there might be, you know, there might be a situation where you have someone and, it, you know, in that case, it need to be someone you could absolutely trust and, you know, confidentiality who's not, you know, probably don't talk to the husband of that person you're struggling. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not going to help your relationship with them. So you need to think in a community long term, um, you know, who can I trust with this information? And do I even maybe need to speak to someone outside of a particular community that I need to get, the, you know, I need to talk to someone about what I'm struggling with. But even, you know, mentioning this is going to be it's not against anyone. It's not something I'm obligated to confess, but I need to talk through it. So, you know what I'm saying? There, mm-hmm. there's, you just really have to think through what good is, you know, what's going to come out of this. Do I need to talk about this? If I yeah. do, how is it going to harm the person I'm speaking about or speaking to? Uh, and ba- balance that out and make a wise decision. Um, you know, obviously, if you've actually undermined someone, um, then, you know, you need to you know, like you need to make that right. Taken. You know, so it's, it's yeah. like, how is your sin manifested? Has it been something only in your heart? Or have you actually been, you know, envying someone and so, you know, seeking to undermine them? In which case, yes, you absolutely have to go to that person and say, mm-hmm. you know, I've undermined you with these people in this way, you know. Right. Um, and I'm going to go to all of these people and I'm going to make it right. But I have to confess to you that I've done this thing against you. Um, mm. And so it really just comes back to the question of what's going to be good in a particular, like you can't get away from the particularities of that. Yeah, sure. Why don't we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday? Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Why don't we? Um, oh, I think the church, you know, so I guess I, I'd want to know, is the question, <laughs> why don't we as a church do that? And, you know, I think the answer I think is the question we- is, I think the question does focus on like, why does Westside not do it every Sunday? Is there a theological reason we don't, or is it just a practical consideration? I mean, so theologically, I think the Lord's Supper should be celebrated every week. I'm very convinced of that. Um, but practically, I think there's a, there needs to be space between what one leader is convinced, convinced of and what the church actually does. And that space is twofold. 
one, it should give room for what the other leaders might think would be appropriate. So like those sorts of practical decisions can't be made by one person alone. So all the pastors have a say in, you know, how that translates into practice. And then two, there also needs to be, you know, immediately because you think something should be done doesn't mean it should be done right away because you can't do everything right away. And there is a, you know, there's a, there's a downside to change as well. So I, I, I've talked about this in some other mm -hmm. setting recently, but I think, um, you know, practically I want to see a much, you know, so even, 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 you know, so that, that first one is not to be passed over. So it would need to be agreement among all the leaders that this is something we should do. Second, secondarily though, I think there would need to be a deeper understanding of, um, what the Lord's Supper is. And it would need to be like a consensus of, there's an understanding of how valuable and how precious the Lord's Supper is and that we would want to do it more frequently. Uh, I think if we were doing it once a year, I'd be much more urgent <laughs> in saying, we need to change this now. Um, if we, even if we were doing it quarterly, you know, doing it monthly isn't maybe as frequent as I would prefer, but it's much more than a lot of other churches have. So it's, you know, close enough in the right direction that it's something that, you know, I care deeply about. Uh, but, you know, you also have to pay attention to, you don't want to make too many changes too quickly because then it just isn't, doesn't do good for the body. It goes back to that same question about conversation, like, you know, what's, it's not just what would my ideal be, but what practical consequences is this ideal going to have? Obviously, if it's a question of sin against God, if we were teaching heresy or something, but when you get to those questions that it is a, you know, in some ways a judgment question of how to apply the scriptures, then you've got to take the consequences and the pace of making decisions into account. Yeah, good. Uh, is there a symbolic meaning to trees in the Bible? Well, you got the tree of life. Um, and then you've got the tree of death, so a tree of cursing. You know, whosoever hangs on a tree is, uh, and there's some really interesting stuff um, with places where it's translated as wood is simply tree, so that the actual connection in Greek and Hebrew is tighter than it sometimes appears in English translation. Um, between all of these different passages that talk about wood, um, you know, the wood of redemption and judgment, and so you've got this whole idea of, you know, Noah's Ark, that, uh, you know, Noah's Ark and the wood that makes the bitter water sweet and the wood that makes the, um, the, uh, uh, the axe head float and the wood of Christ's cross. And so you've got these language connections between all of these things. And so you have this, this broader pattern of, you know, wood bringing life, you know, but also a tree is a place of curse. Um, and so you have those two, of course, coming together in the cross where it's the place on which Christ bore the curse and brought life. So he becomes the tree of life. And then we, you know, we come to him and we, we eat of the fruit of the tree of life um, in the Lord's Supper. <laughs> the Lord's Supper is a, is a symbolism, but, but also, you know, that idea that we'll partake of the fruit of immortality, you know, in the New Jerusalem. But that bread, you know, the, the early church would speak of the Lord's Supper as the bread of immortality. And so there's an idea that in some sense, the fruit of the supper is a foretaste of the fruit of the tree of life. Um, and so it's all, you know, can get kind of mystical and, and, and but it, sometimes the scriptures can get kind yeah. of mystical too. So there's a, there's a sense of deep connectiveness that unites, you know, from, from the garden of, you know, from Eden to Jerusalem through the old Jerusalem and the cross that Does was there. Does Revelation end with the tree of life too? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. 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 So, so it bookends. Yeah, yeah. It bookends, but it also is the center. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's cool. Uh, is there any archaeological evidence for the Tower of Babel's structural design as 
popularly seen when we see pictures of it? Well, it's based on, depending on, you know, like the idea of a ziggurat. There's a lot of, mm. ar- you know, archaeological evidence for ziggurats in, you know, that area of the world. So that's where the where the imagery came from. Okay. So they're just assuming that that would have been the type of structure used right. for that kind of right. tower. You know, whether that actually is anything like the historical Tower of Babel, that gets into questions of chronology and placement and, and stuff that I just don't, yeah. you know, if we found the Tower of Babel, would we even know that we found it? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, so. So we have it on good authority that those are the kinds of structures that were being built around that time. Right. The question de- is. De- depending on about when that time was. Sure. Be, yeah, yeah. You know, right. so. I mean, I, yeah, the plane of China. It if wasn't just made up by Right, someone. there are these things yeah, called ziggurats, right. and they look <laughs> something, you know, more like, you know, the sort of medieval pictures are probably a little less accurate, you know, but a lot more recent pictures of sort of the stepped structure, like there are ziggurats there. You yeah. know, whether it was a ziggurat, we don't know, but it does sort of make sense that they would build something like that. Okay. And of course, cool. you, you do have, you do have the, uh, you know, the insight that's in Outlaws of Time about the the eye of the Tower of Babel that's like buried beneath the earth. And mm, yeah, there you go. So yeah, I, go, I, I, go, I don't, I don't know if that's relevant at all, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So last question, uh, we all bring questions to you often of, uh, difficult Bible things we're trying to tackle. Are there any particular questions that you are currently trying to, uh, unravel in your study, whether for a sermon or just a bigger question that you're chewing on? Hmm. There's always a bunch of little questions that come up in a study, but is there anything? I mean, the main thing that I'm, I mean, I'd say the big, the big sort of project I have right now, I don't know if this is the big, you know, this answers the question, but like the big project I have right now is the series I'm doing on embodiment in July. So that's my, I'm doing a series, uh, see what's going to be called. Unvirtual reality. Unvirtual, yeah, you remembered it. Yeah. Unvirtual reality, why we can't get away from our bodies and why we shouldn't try. And so basically all of my church reading right now has to do with that question. Um, and I've just got a stack mm-hmm. of books about embodiment, about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to have a family, marriage, lots of related topics. Yeah. And so I'm just immersing myself in that. So I cool. tend to be thinking a lot about that sort of stuff right now. Um, so church, church-wise, there's that. Yeah. Uh, so I think that would be like, I don't Number know if that's one. so much a question, but that's definitely what I'm really focusing on. into, yeah. Because I think that's really, you know, I, I talked about this even a little bit in the sermon on Sunday. It just sort of comes out, like whatever you're working on sort of flows out into everything. You see the connections. Um, and so that's basically, like I, I tend to have like a couple, you know, one or, you know, with that, I just have so much I'm trying to do for that. Basically, because I think it's, it's where the, the main fault line is in our culture and even within churches, and it, it connects so many things. And so I'm not going to use all the research I'm doing for this one series, <laughs> but I think it's really important to have thought through it. And so that's typically like how, you know, the only way I get time to do big research projects, you know, like that, um, is that I have a topic I'm going to be teaching on, and then I over-prepare <laughs> in terms of doing more work than I need for that. And then that has spillover effect that shows up in lots of other places, you know, so like stuff I did for Men's Retreat about, you know, being the light and building a, building a culture, you know, has been beneficial lots of other places. So I'll get a stack of books and I'll burn through that <laughs> and then I'll find them, you know, insights that I'll underline and will show up in other places. So that, I don't know if that answers yeah, the question. Yeah, that's good. That's great. Well, any uh, last thoughts before we sign off on uh, this week's episode? 
Oh, I think we. How long? How 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 long did it take we, us to get through? We've uh, th- this has been a pretty standard podcast. Twenty eight minutes at this sounds at this good. Point. So, for uh, asking nine questions, that's a that's a pretty good question answer rate. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, this has been West Side Unscripted. Thank you once again for uh, listening in and sending in all these questions. We'd love to hear more questions that you have. Uh, anything about the Bible, theology, and culture, and we'll. Uh, them up for Pastor Peter so he can tackle them in future episodes. So uh, send those my way, and uh, we will be with you again next week for more talk about theology and culture here on Westside Unscripted.